0: Welcome to episode 59 of the Reformation Roundtable podcast, a production of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. We are located in Lewis County and we are an evangelical and reformed church. We have planted uh, in May of 2021 and we have been having a blast. I'm Super excited to bring you the audio from our Lord's Day service that took place on August 15th of 2021. If you'd like to join us for worship or to learn more about what we believe, you can head on over to lewiscounty.church, not .com, lewiscounty.church. You'll find our meeting times and our meeting place there. So with that, we'll turn it over to the sermon. Hope you enjoy the audio and I hope you join us for Lord's Day worship. Our meditation and preparation for worship this morning comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 1, part of verse 2, and verse 14. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Fear the Lord serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we serve no God but you. We have chosen to serve you because you first loved us and chose us to be your inheritance. Strip away all evil from us, we ask, so that we may worship you in the beauty of holiness. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. This is a call and response, so join me in your bulletin and follow along. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Depart from evil and do good. The, and pursue it. the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are open to their cries. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thank you for calling us into your glorious presence. We desire life and know that such a gift can only come from you. Thank you for placing your eyes upon us and opening your ears to our cries. Keep us from evil and deceit, and for those who would do evil against you or your people, we ask that you would cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. Amen. If you love Jesus, you need a church in which to belong. This isn't negotiable. Worshiping weekly and serving the brethren go hand in hand with the new life that is found in Christ. Don't forsake gathering together, the author of Hebrews tells us. Since you're all here this morning, I won't belabor the point. We all agree that at least we should be here. Okay, but what about when we get to church? What should the worship look like? An earnest believer, a very earnest Christian, might express and will express a preference for this type of worship, that style of preaching, an emphasis on this topic, or perhaps avoiding that particular doctrine. Human preference is hard to understand and impossible to quantify. Now, we also live in an age of large, sprawling communities which are no longer limited by distance, being instead connected by cars. So this gives us quite a lot of choices of churches from which to pick. And why, if this one isn't doing it for us, there are five more on the list we can try. Add to that our individualistic, American, I'm the boss of me spirit, and the waters of what worship should look like grow muddier still. So to deal with all of this, most modern evangelical churches adopt a very informal style of worship with a come-as-you-are culture. Christianity isn't a religion, they tell us. It's a relationship. God doesn't, want to be your, God doesn't want your stuffy, scripted religion. He just wants to be your friend. It's so common to hear this kind of thing now, it's become cliche. However, the picture the Bible paints for us is this, also the author of Hebrews. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Reverence and awe? A consuming fire? Acceptable worship? What have we gotten ourselves into here? I thought the Christian God was nice and accepting and non-judgmental. Well, God certainly accepts us where we are when we come to him, but he never leaves us there. He is constantly forming and reforming us in growth and maturity. So let me ask you a question. Are you approaching God with reverence and awe when he calls you into his presence? Are you seeking acceptable worship? If you are, good. And when you hear, the, and when you hear of Paul rejoicing with the Colossians in chapter 2 and verse 5, when you hear him rejoicing with them for their good order in worship, it might make you want to rethink everything about your order of worship. So if this is your first time worshiping with us today, you've already noticed that we are not informal here. This is intentional. And we're not just trying to be uptight, and we're certainly not trying to be original or different. We're not trying to add another flavor to the evangelical church ice cream shop. What we are trying to do is to capture, or recapture rather, the historic and evangelical reverence and awe for our holy and triune God. We are trying to build a faithfully biblical pattern of acceptable worship. We are trying to reflect the awesome power of our God in worship in such a way that each of us, when faced with the consuming glory of our maker, the worshiper, either falls on his or her face in love and repentance or flees in terror and disgust. There is no lukewarm option. We also know that our order of service or our liturgy is far from perfect, which is why we are prayerfully reexamining and reforming it so that by God's grace, it might give more glory to him and greater firmness to our faith in Christ. God, the consuming fire, is calling you into his presence this morning, and he is telling us to take heart and trust in Christ for protection from that fire. So this reminds us of our need to confess our sin. So as you are able, will you kneel with me? Scripture says in Psalm 34, verses 17 and 18, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. And delivers them from all, out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So if you would take your order of service bulletin, you'll find in it a prayer of confession that we're all going to pray together out loud. Let's pray together. Most holy and merciful Father, we acknowledge and confess in your presence the sinfulness of our nature and our shortcomings and offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, and in forgetting your love. Have mercy, O Lord, and forgive our sins through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen. We now have a time to confess our own individual sins. Selah. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, and amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Psalm 34:17 and 18 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ.
1: Today's scripture for today's sermon is from Genesis 1, and it's verse 1, and actually it's only a portion of verse 1. In the beginning, God. The very word of the very God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, we truly do. And Lord, we pray that you would anoint our lips and our ears, our eyes, our hearts, every every single thing about us, Lord, to partake and to uh, receive your word and your truth. Lord, guide us all today while it's still today. And we thank you for this time of fellowship and this time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please, please be seated. I understand we have some weary travelers amongst us, so Joe suggested maybe I should pep it up a little bit, but I don't think we need to do that. In the beginning, God. And four words that are just um, about as powerful, I think, as any words can be. And as I was talking with the elders, Luke and Joe, and understood that I would have an opportunity to be here on this Sunday, um, of course, I begin to think and begin to seek the Lord and and ask God, what, what word is it that you would want? And initially, I thought about the Sermon on the Mount because I love the Sermon on the Mount, and it's because it's so difficult as well. But the Lord has caused me to change directions in a radical way and put a a real burden on my heart for the book of Genesis. And as Christ Covenant Church is in a season, as we await a pastor, and I would submit to you that the pastor who we will have in this church uh, may not even know it, but he's on his way, because God knows, and God will provide. But in that season, in this interim... Uh, we've had many uh, many men come and ascend into the pulpit and share the word of God, and Joe and Luke uh, reminded me after my rather lengthy sermon last time that there may be other opportunities for me, and I thought, well, that's never been proffered to me before. So as the Lord put a burden for Genesis, I thought, well, what portion of Genesis? And that wasn't really an issue. It's the beginning of Genesis. And whether or not... I have the opportunity to preach all the way through Genesis. <laughs> okay, it doesn't matter. The Lord may call me home before we get to the end of that. Okay, or even better, <laughs> for maybe for me in the short term, uh, we have a pastor that comes. But, uh, but nonetheless, we're going to start there. But today we're not going to. We're not really going to. Um, we're not going to move in and step into the book of Genesis. Today is a day I wanted to, and, and as I thought about this and, and uh, wanted to consider what we would, we would have for a message today, um, I was thinking about Genesis and how, what a daunting uh, task that, would, that is. Because when you really think about Genesis, it, it is the beginning. In the beginning, God and then, and then everything just kind of begins to build, and we begin to see God reveal himself to us in the book of Genesis. So I, I kind of envision Genesis as a mountain, okay? And although you can just tell by looking at me, I am no mountain climber, um, as we approach the mountain that is Genesis... I thought about folks who do climb mountains, folks who do things like Kilimanjaro or th- folks who do Everest or Rainier. They 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 go to a camp, and they and they set up, and they do this thing called acclimation. And although I've never climbed a mountain, I've read about folks who have and uh, and climbed a few mountains vicariously through them. So today what I want to do is I want to move into the camp, if you will, and I want to unpack a little bit. I want to prepare for this ascension into this mountain that is Genesis. And as I was thinking about this camping motif, Psalm 24 came to my mind in verses 3 and 4. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So as we begin this and as we um, kind of unpack this morning, I want to ask you in the room, and you, it's okay if you raise your hand, who in this room is a theologian? Uh, can I see the hands of the theologians? Okay, now let me, let me, let me share this with you. The, theology means to think about God. It literally means the science of God. So with that definition with us this morning, let me ask again, who in here is a theologian? There we go. Every hand should be up. If you belong to Christ, if you are a Christian, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, everybody's hand goes up. Everybody's. Because we are theologians. And I'm going to tell you, if we are not preoccupied with God, we we need to stand back and make a course correction here, okay? So... Everybody in here is a theologian. I think RC even said that, if I'm not mistaken. You think he wrote a book about it? There you go. So as I was thinking about this and trying to determine the day and, and what the, the nature of the message would be today, I thought, what why is Genesis important? And why did God create anything? Why did He create humans? And, of course, we've talked uh, briefly and in in a moment about worldview, and and everybody on the planet's worldview needs to answer that one question for sure. Why is there something rather than nothing? Well, we're not going to really delve into that today. But there's a more fundamental question to ask before those questions may be, and that is, can we know God? And, of course, when we dig deeper and differentiate between knowing God about God, and knowing God. So I want to consider that distinction today, knowing about God and knowing God or knowing of God. And the first thing I want to, uh, I want to consider as we think about God, in the beginning, God, about who He is, what He is, is the fact that God is incomprehensible. Okay? Okay. We are Christians here, and we gladly come, no matter how weary and tired we are. We come and we join together. And it's not fatigue that's going to rule us today. It's the prospect of of joining together and worshiping together this God. This God who is incomprehensible. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Okay, I, I know God. Okay, well we'll kind of get there but we I want to I want to look at some some truth about God before as we as we unpack in our campground here God is ultimately incomprehensible to us and to say it another way we can never fully comprehend God ever Psalm 145 verse 3 says great is the lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable In Job 26.14, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power who can understand, and of course, the familiar Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we can't get through this without turning to our brother Paul. And in Romans eleven thirty three and 4, Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? At this point, I was going to read uh, Job chapter 38, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do that today. But I would invite you all to do it. But why is God incomprehensible when we consider this? We, you, there's, there's a familiarity within us about God that we have, yet this guy up in front of me is telling me that God is incomprehensible. Well, why is he? And the funda- one of the fundamental reasons is, is that God is infinite and his creatures are finite. That will always be the case. It will never not be the case. God is infinite and we are not. The perfect unity of God's attributes, what we know as God's attributes, is far beyond the realm of human experience. God's love, wrath, grace, justice, holiness, patience, and jealousy are continually functioning in a perfectly integrated yet infinitely complex way. As well as us being finite, there's this other thing called sin as well. There's this other thing that we are going to encounter in Genesis as we see creation uh, happen and then this unfolding happen. We're going to see this thing called sin come in, come into our, our realm and affect us to our very core. That, in, that inhibits us greatly into knowing God. The tendency of fallen creatures is to distort and pervert, confuse truth and to use or rather abuse it for selfish ends rather than for God's glory. And again, I'm going to seek out Brother Paul in Romans 1 and start in verse 18, thinking about the incomprehensibility of God and, and what, what makes him God and what makes us who we are. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Now, that's, that's a really rough portion of Scripture to consider, but remember, we're looking at it in the context of knowing God. And Paul's telling us, and he's actually defining what idolatry is in that portion of Scripture. When we, when we worship the creature rather than the Creator, that's idolatry. And we can see that how pervasive that is on so many levels in our life. Um, and I'll save all that for another time Okay. God reveals himself to us but in his sovereign wisdom he has chosen to not reveal some things to us and again the verses I'm using out of the scriptures today are familiar to, to most of us in here Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 says the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Now we're seeing we're seeing a pattern here about knowing God. When we think about the incomprehensibility of God and what that means for us, and what the implications of that mean for us, one of the things we want to think about is that we can hold very firm convictions, we can hold... Convictions, even though they may be filled with this inexplicable mystery that is in that is contained in the Word of God. So we think about the Trinity, right? We think about the Trinity, and I have—I'm um, not going to explain it to anybody's satisfaction today because I think it's impossible. I've heard all kinds of illustrations given. Well, it's like water. It can, be, it can be solid, liquid, or gas. But um, that falls so short. Very inadequate. And I've heard it about light and photons of light and all of this. But here's, here's the thing. That we know the Trinity is true. We know that God is one. One God in three persons. We can't we can't help but be there to be Trinitarian Christians and understand that. Because the Bible the Bible talks about that. The Bible talks about God the Son coming and being baptized and the heavens opening up and said, Behold my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, and we see the Holy Spirit like a dove come down. That's just, just one example of, of seeing that and 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 saying, Listen. I can't explain it to you all. I can't. And in fact, I'll, I will not, I defy anybody to explain it to, to everybody's satisfaction. Some people may buy in whatever example you may use. But nonetheless, we hold it dear to us. It is vital for us to, to think about that. When we think about, let's say, the hypostatic union of Christ, right? Christ is fully man and he is fully God. Well, let me explain that to you today can't do it but you know what i know it i know it i know it's true i know it's a fact i know my savior is in heaven and he bears the marks of what he did for us he bears the stigmata and he he is there and he's he's been fully god the whole time since time immemorial and in eternity and he's fully man and i can't explain that or let's think of another mystery that's, that floats around out there that gets thrown at us quite a bit, and that's the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. You know, and and our our minds snap right to Romans chapter nine, and we think about that. Well, who can find fault if he's sovereign and all that? You know, that's a mystery, and you know what? I'll, I won't explain it to anybody's satisfaction today. And, and somebody, I'm. I, if I'm recalling, I haven't read this recently, but I think somebody asked Charles Spurgeon, how do you reconcile free will and the sovereignty of God? And Spurgeon just said, I don't need to reconcile old friends. You know, we, we, know, it's, we know God is sovereign. We know he is. But we are responsible creatures as well. And there's many other many other mysteries that are there that kind of lend themselves to this incomprehensibility of God that we're we're making reference to this morning. You know, believing them requires a, a robust affirmation of this incomprehensibility of God. If we were if we were left short of just knowing that God is incomprehensible and that we can't know Him. That would have, I would say, there's a strong potential that that would lead us to despair and even apathy when we consider God. You know, I always think about, I I think about the book of Romans because I pretty much have lived in Romans, Um, and I think about the first seven chapters of Romans. And I've heard it said that there are school law schools in the country who have used Romans 1-7 through 7 as an example of how to build a case. Because that's what Paul is doing in Romans 1-7. through 7. He's building a case against humanity. And, you know, it ends kind of at the end of chapter 7 where Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from the body of this death? We kind of end up there. Now think about if Romans stopped right there. If, if it just ended there, where would we be? So here we are considering the incomprehensibility of God, and we, can, we can tend to, to allow that to be the same case where Romans 1-7 through 7 is a funeral dirge, but then we move into Romans 8 and it says, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now the wedding march starts. And that's how God operates. That's how, that's how he is. So we have this incomprehensible God. But we can know him and knowing that he's it's incomprehensible knowing that God is incomprehensible but yet we sit here as his people called by his name and we know him that sh- that drives us to worship and it drives us to thanksgiving that this incomprehensible God, that the world sees as folly, that the world looks at his people and thinks we are the biggest fools ever walking on the face of the earth, that we can, we can stand and know that we know God. That, that elicits what everything that's happening this morning in us. And that just isn't this morning. We take it with us when we go home, and we take it with us when we go to work, and we take it with us when we go to school. We take it with us when we go to camp we take it with us to moscow idaho or to winlock washington we take that that truth that's in us god is real and god has allowed himself to be known and he's made himself known we can we can know god because he reveals himself in the scriptures and we can't know the scriptures unless we're willing to be changed by the scriptures We really can't know the scripture unless we're willing to be changed by them. Knowledge of God occurs only when we also know our deep spiritual need. And when we are receptive to God's gracious provision to reveal himself to us through the work of his his son, his precious son, who's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So God God reveals himself to us, and he allows himself to to be known to us. But here's the rub. Here's the rub of that. We will never know God exhaustively, ever, not even in heaven. Because remember, there's there's this massive distinction between him and us, this infinite being and these finite creatures. We can't know God exhaustively. And you go, well, wow, okay. But listen, here's what we can do. and Here's what we can possess. We can know God truly. We can know God personally. And we can know him sufficiently. So we may not know him exhaustively. In fact, we will not know him exhaustively. But we can know him truly. So we can know the things about God and know that they're true. Because our God is faithful, and our God keeps his promises. Knowledge of God in Christ should be our greatest delight. It should be the thing that brings us the the abject joy in our life, the most joy. In Jeremiah 9 and 23 and 4, it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And again, Brother Paul and the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2 says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in Galatians six fourteen, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Knowing God for us is—it's vital, and it brings a vitality to us. It quickens—it quickens our dead and dead hearts, our hearts of stone. It's the basis it's the basis for our attaining eternal life you think of John 17 verse 3 and this is eternal life Jesus is going to tell us what eternal life this is eternal life that they know you the only true god and Jesus Christ whom you have sent and it's at the heart of life in the new covenant This knowledge and and revelation of God in our lives. Think of Hebrews 8 and 11 and 12. And they shall not teach, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And of course... Delighting in Christ leads us to godly love. We think of 1 John 4, uh, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows, and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I want to look for just a, just a few minutes here and talk about God's attributes. Because remember, we're unpacking this, this God, in the beginning God, that's where we're at this morning, to prepare us to begin to ascend this mountain that is Genesis. I appreciate you indulging my metaphor, my uh, analogy, my image, or whatever. The Word of God, the Bible, tells us what God, what God is like, and it also tells us what God is not like and only what god has chosen to reveal about himself can be known. we do not have the capacity to discern things that have not been revealed to us about god. yet many of us and i've been guilty of it can speculate at times about certain things. matthew 11:27 says all things have been handed jesus is saying this all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We must understand that God is our creator, and we are part of his creation. And as we think about, as we want to expand and grow in this knowledge of God, many of us have, have considered, because it's been made available to us and, and made, made almost systematic for us, the, the names of God. That can tell us things about God, right? So I have just a few here. I'm not going to preach on them, but they're they here. And I, would, and I would invite you that uh, this is wonderful fodder for devotion time, thinking about the names of God. I mean, the Bible is replete with, with the names of God. You think of Elohim. Elohim is the term for God that, I, that we cited this morning in Genesis 1, verse 1. And Elohim, Elohim means strong one or divine then we know Adonai, which means Lord, and it indicates a master-to-servant relationship. We see that in, in uh, Exodus 4. el Yan means most high, the strongest one in Genesis 14. El-Roy, the strong one who sees in Genesis 13. El-Shaddai, almighty God in Genesis 17. El-Olam, everlasting God in Isaiah 40. And of course, Yahweh, Lord, I am, meaning eternal, self-existent God in Exodus three thirteen and 14. Now, just that one, that last one alone in Exodus 3, 13 and 14, that actually could be a sermon series, more than just one sermon, when we consider when God says, when the Lord says, tells Moses, I am. Tell them, I am sent, sent you. Okay, what, a, what an amazing question. Now, but everything that God, God presented to Moses to ask of him, Moses said, I got to go back there, what do I call you? What's appropriate? And the Lord said, You tell him, I am. And that, that contains, I mean, every, everything, okay? Um, God's attributes are those qualities that constitute what he is, the very characteristic of his nature. Remember, we're, we're looking at knowing God this morning. Question four of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, What is God? And here's the answer. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's a great answer, succinct, and that's one of the reasons why we are confessional and creedal people in, in our church. This was, this was not something somebody just dreamt up while they were sitting on their waterbed at home. This, this, this has been fleshed out by, by thousands and thousands of hours of studying the word of God. God's attributes are those things that he has declared to be true about himself. When we think about his attributes, they're not what here's the thing and I was reading A.W. Tozer this week about this. God is the, the attributes are not what God is composed of. God is not composed of anything. There's never been a time where God not is was been or anything like that. God is infinite. There is no one, nothing before God. He's not composed of anything. He's not a composition of his attributes. And the other thing about the attributes that is important to understand is that the attributes, as, as we study them and look at them, they apply to the entire Godhead. The attribute of infinity or eternity or love or whatever applies equally to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. The attributes are permanent. They're intrinsic qualities. They can't be gained or lost. Again, we're, we're, we're talking about, in a way, we're talking about how we can know God, and this is information about God. Um, these attributes that we know that we've seen listed are inseparable from God's being or essence. Um. The attributes are his nature, so we don 't say we don't say God loves, although he does, we say God is love. we say God is holiness, God is justice he 's infinite he 's eternal he 's faithful, all of that and when we think about the attributes of God, we think usually we categorize them in two categories: one the communicable attributes, okay attributes that can be communicated from God to others, namely his human creatures and we think of God is love and humans can love, right? We can love because God is love. He's not He's not love because He loves. He loves because He's love, you know. But we are humans and we can love. And I was thinking about this. You know, I love my wife. And here's the thing I love her with all my heart. And I say that confidently, I do without any arrogance or anything. I love my wife with all, with all my heart. I don't think I can love her anymore. But here's what I can do. I can love her better. Because we as creatures, we love, but we love imperfectly. So my prayer, my repetitive prayer is, Lord, help me love better. I want to I love that woman better. I don't think I can love her anymore, but I can love her better. And Lord, I want to I love, love your people better, too. I pray for that because, I, you know, I've struggled with that sometimes. I can be a very selfish person. So anyway, we see, that we see these attributes that can be communicated to us. God is just. We, we seek justice. We look for it in our lives. But again, it's imperfect. How many, things, how many times have we seen uh, judgment come from a bench that was just totally irrational and totally unjust? Not from God we won't, ever, because he's perfect in that. And, you know, humans, um, man, uh, I've, I've gotten cards and things from the stout children, and they're just wonderful. They're beautiful. They create these these things, these ideas that get put on ca- a card or whatever, and, and I, cherish, I really appreciate them. I cherish them. And they've created those things. But you know what? When Liesl did it, she grabbed, she grabbed a colored pencil, she grabbed a paper, she did all this, and what was in her came out and it got expressed on the paper. But when God created the world, it was ex nihilo, it was out of nothing. Out of nothing. So we can be creative and we can create. So there's an attribute of God that we can, we can share in, but again, it's, it's, it's different and it's infinitely different. One of the um, well, before I go on, there's the next category. The other category is the incommunicable attributes of God. Those are unique and distinct to Him. They cannot be communicated to us, and we all, you know, we all know those already. And I don't want, I don't want to belabor them. You know, God's omnipotence, His omniscience, His, his omnipresence, uh, His eternity, all His holiness. All these things belong to God and Him alone. We we can't we can't partake of those although we can be the beneficiaries of them, or the benefactors rather. Beneficiaries, I'm sorry. but one there's there's three attributes that are incommunicable that I just wanna I want to touch on and then um, we'll be prepared in our campsite to think about what's coming ahead in Genesis. And the first one is assiduity. It's a, a a bit of a archaic term perhaps but aseity refers to god's independence or self-existence that's that's important it's from the latin word asci which means from himself now aseity is not to be confused with asceticism okay you'll see that term kind of floating around out there and that's just a that's an approach to living that renounces the comforts of the material world that's asceticism we're not we're not asceticists here but we're, we're looking at God, one of his incommunicable attributes, this attribute of aseity. And I chose aseity. There's a few incommunicable attributes, but I chose aseity for this reason, because I'm thinking, about, I'm thinking about Genesis, I'm thinking about the creation, I'm thinking about all this. And remember back at the beginning, a few minutes ago, uh, we asked, well, why did God create anything? Why did God create us? You know, that's a really valid question. We should. We, nothing wrong with asking that. And I've heard it said in my in my life that God God lacks glory, or he lacks love, and therefore creates men and women to supply it. He then cares for them as a reward for that. So we've got this God who who's lonely, and or desires someone to love him. So he creates. He creates creatures who will love him, and if they love him, he will reward them. Or he's lonely. He's sitting on a cloud up there eating a bagel with Philadelphia cream cheese on it or whatever. He's, he's bored, so I'm gonna, I want to make, make these people. I've heard that. I've heard it from Christians, too. Or that God created us because he, just, he needed us. Let me just say this. God does not need us, Okay. And I know every head in here is going to nod with an affirmation of that. God does not need us, nor does he need the rest of creation for anything. God gains nothing from us. Nothing. We're talking about God who is perfect. You can't improve upon perfection. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfections, and to doubt him takes nothing away from him. You know, we can handle that truth. We can handle that truth as his people. But as we say that, and it's a very it's a severe statement, it may may make us uncomfortable. It may even cause us to squirm a little bit or whatever. You know, that that's too bad. He doesn't need us, but here's the thing. We and the rest of creation can glorify God and bring him joy. You know, you think about, you want to you start delving in and considering why God created us. Why, what's the chief end of man, right? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We can, we can worship him and bring God joy, and that should bring us joy that we can do that. That he has that he has he has allowed and revealed and instituted and, and uh, has that kind of relationship with us. Listen to what Paul proclaims in uh, to the men of Athens in Acts seventeen. Here, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need anything. And I keep hammering that, but at the same time, I want to balance it, okay? I want to balance it with the fact that we can know God. And there's also this truth that we're aware of, because our Lord Jesus Christ has made it aware to to us, of this intra-Trinitarian love that has been eternal, that has always existed, that is perfect And that is mutual and unconditional and all of that between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In John 17, a couple verses out of John 17, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. That's just, that's just a wonderful thing. The, 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 our our king, our lord, our god, our priest is praying that prayer. And that's not for the world, it's for us. That we would know him, the one true living God. So we, a seity, and then the next attribute that I'm just going to illuminate here, I promise, uh, is transcendence, because we want we want God we want to we want to really fixate on God and who He is today, because it's going to it's going to be it's going to be the essential thing that we we take with us and we carry with us as we go on to Mount Genesis, if you will. And that's transcendence. To transcend means to exist above and independent from. To rise above. To surpass. To exceed. And by this definition, we can see that God is the only truly transcendent being ever. Think about Isaiah 57, verse 15. The first half of the verse says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. We've read that in in Isaiah 57. That's our God. And being transcendent, God is both, both unknown and unknowable, yet God continually seeks to reveal himself to us and to his creation. And besides being transcendent now, the last attribute I just want to make a reference to is God's imminence. Not his imminence, not the fact when we talk about imminent that we think Christ is imminently coming that he can come any time or soon or whatever, but imminence with an A, I M M A N E. Ence. Okay, make sure I've spelled it right. And the attribute of immanence tells us that God is present in space and time, and of course, those are two conditions in which He is not restricted by as we are. But it means that God is near. So when we look at when we look at Isaiah fifty-seven. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. I only read to you half the half the verse, right? You guys know this verse. Because there's a second half. And I saved it for imminence because it, sa- because it says, and also, to continue on with verse 15, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Wow. Wow. We know that God inhabits this high and holy place, this unapproachable place, this place that we, we could never know about unless he chose to tell us and show us and reveal it to us. But yet we also know that he, 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 he um, tabernacles with those who, who are contrite and lowly in spirit. You know, We heard Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who see their their spiritual depravity, those their spiritual deficit. But God all God has an answer for all that, and you know I want as as severe as this as knowing God is. I want to be I want to be sure that you also hear me when I say we can know God and He's made Himself and He's revealed Himself to us. That's a beautiful thing, and it should it should fill us with this with this. Um, sense of, of love and worship and glory and all, all of this as we, as we check it out today. You know, as far as immanence goes, there is no place that God is not. He's everywhere simultaneously. And the evidence for his transcendence as well as his imminence is evident in his infallible and inerrant and inspired word. Now, as an aside, and I'm going to finish up here, okay? But as an aside, I, there was, there's two terms that I want to think about in the context of uh, transcendence and immanence, and that is this notion of pantheism, and you guys will run across this as you study theology, because you're all theologians, and you're going to run across these things. And pantheism will tell us everything is God or is a part of God, which makes him equal with his creation and unable to act upon it. So we, we wanna be we wanna be discerning and we wanna know what we're talking about. We wanna understand these things. We wanna we wanna study and meditate on the word of God. And the other the other term that we'll come across is deism, which does talk about that God is distant from his creation, but it says that God deny, but it denies that God plays any active role in his creation. We know that's not right. So I wanna finish with this. There's a book. There's a book that I have, and, and perhaps some of you, or maybe all of you, have by J.I. Packer called "Knowing God," and it's and it's an amazing book. If you don't have it, I cannot encourage you enough to look at it. Um, I read it, and I do my thing in the book with the highlights and all that. And then Kay read it and does her thing in the book. And then I was using it this week to look at it, and I. Between her and I, everything in there's underlined. So I, I don't know what stands out and what we're supposed to figure out with it. But anyway, I have some excerpts here. I want to just share what, what J.I. Packer, um, who's in heaven now, has to say. He talks about five basic truths, five foundational principles of the knowledge about God which Christians possess. Number one: God has spoken to man in the Bible in His Word, given to us to make us wise unto salvation. Number two, God is Lord and King over his world. He rules all things for his own glory, displaying his his perfections in all that he does in order that men and angels may worship and adore him. Number three, God is Savior, active in sovereign love through the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue believers from the guilt and power of sin, to adopt them as his children, and to bless them accordingly. Number four, God is triune, There are within the Godhead three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the work of salvation is one in which all three act together, the Father purposing redemption, the Son securing it, and the Spirit applying it. Number five, godliness means responding to God's revelation in trust and obedience, faith and worship, prayer and praise, submission and service. Life must be seen and lived in the light of God's word. This and nothing else is true religion we've been talking about religion already this morning there's a fundamental difference that we need to understand as far as knowing God that we can know about God and i 'm going to tell you many unbelievers know about God. There are people who have rationalized that there must be a there must be an initial cause for things, but that in no way shape they may so they may be tacitly acknowledging God, but they hate God so much that they worship the creation rather than the creator as Paul says in Romans one so they may they may They may have to give in to that and know about God. And we study theology as well to know about God, but here here again is the rub, that we as his people actually know God. We know of him, we know who he is, because we're in relationship with him. Again from Packer, it says, Our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself better. This is what we're after, folks. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. As he is the subject of our study, and our helper in it, so he must himself be the end of it. We must seek, in studying God, to be led to God. It was for this purpose that Revelation was given, and it is to this use that we must put it. I came that you might know God, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about being reconciled to God, and that word reconcile is used quite a bit in that chapter, if I remember correctly. And then, what do we say after we look at all this? And again, I'm going to lean on um, Packer for this, and a couple things I would submit to you as, in closing here. One is that we must recognize how much we lack knowledge of God. We must learn to measure ourselves, not by our knowledge about God, not by our gifts and responsibilities in the church, but by how we pray and what goes on in our hearts. Many of us, perhaps, have no idea how impoverished we are at this level. Let us ask the Lord to show us. I always think of Psalm 139, Search my heart, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And then secondly, we must seek the Savior It is those who have sought the Lord Jesus till they have found him who can stand before the world to testify that they have known God. Jeremiah 29, right? It's those who have sought the Lord Jesus till they have found him who can stand before the world to testify that they have known God. Again, that is absolutely absolutely essential for us. I was talking to my sister Leslie this morning about Dan Zwecker and what a trial and what a trial they are going through. And you know, we all have an opinion and an attitude about the things that are going on around us in this world. And I would submit to you that often it's it's not it does when it doesn't cost us anything, when when we're not directly affected by something we can take a stance and we can look it can look very heroic it can look very avant-garde or whatever you want to call it but when it affects something when when something is going on in which we have a strong opinion about affects someone we love dearly it can be a challenge to us we can we can begin maybe to uh, if if we determined a certain opinion or a certain understanding of something based on based, based on our dialogue with God, based on prayer, based upon all these other things, and that's, that's where we end up. you know, the the warrant and declaration and all this other stuff, and we say, we, we see that and we, we subscribe to it or we adhere to it. But then all of a sudden, out of left field, someone who's very vital to us, who's important to us, who's, who we know, who we know of and, and know intimately, is affected by that. It can be a challenge for us, but like I said, we got we got to face the world here. And as much as we're going to pray, and as hard as we're going to pray for Dan and Debbie, uh, you know, we still we still want to maintain our faith in God, and we still want to stand on the truth of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord, and Lord, hear our voices and hear our, hear our hearts. Search our hearts, Lord, and see if there be any way in us that would cause us to stand a guilty distance from you. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts and our our souls for communion, we just give you thanks and praise that we can know you, not exhaustively, but Lord, we can know you truly, personally, and sufficiently. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.
0: We now have the great honor to come to the Lord's table. We have been called into God's presence, and we have come with reverence and awe. We've confessed our sins and have been assured by Scripture that we are forgiven and united with Christ. And as Les has just preached, we know that God is here. We know He is with us in time and in space, and He has promised to be here with us this morning. We've been changed now. Our corporate prayers of thanksgiving and petition, the reading of the word, the preaching of the word, the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, offering our first fruits to God through the tithe, all of this has consecrated us and made us more like Jesus, set us apart from the world and made us sacred. This has all happened because God is love and has relentlessly pursued us in that love. Therefore, we can, in Christ, boldly approach the throne of grace, knowing that our holy God sees the perfection of Christ in us. He doesn't see us. He sees Jesus when we come to him. This table belongs to Christ's body, to all of those who belong to Jesus. If you've been baptized, a public declaration of your union with Christ and his church, then this table is for you. Come with joy, because the author of life divine has spread a table for you. Come, and welcome to change. The charge is this. As Les has said, God is all of these things. He's omnipotent. He is omnipresent, some of which we can share in, and some of which we can't. But He is love. He loves us, and let us walk in the victory of that love. Go out knowing that God loved you so much that he took his own son, sent him for you, a guilty sinner, and with nothing in return, put him on the cross and poured out all of his wrath onto him in your place. Remember that and walk in joy and victory of the gospel. Will you rise for the benediction? Our benediction comes from Ephesians 8, 9, and verse 14. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Therefore, he says, awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.